Today's reading is John 11, 1 through 5, 12, 1 through 2, 13, 22 through 26, 19, 25 through 27, 20, 1 through 5, 21, 20 through 24. It can be found starting on page 990 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death, no. It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he answered him, Lord, who is it? He asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, we come from different places, different experiences, different views of you, different levels of openness to you. So now, as we listen, opening our ears and attempting to open our hearts as much as we're able, this is my prayer that whether we come in a place of great vulnerability, we feel fragile this morning, or whether in some way we feel in control and strong, perhaps too in control, would you now speak in such a way that if we're vulnerable, we sense the safety with you and the caring love that our hearts so desperately long for. And if we're too in control, may you also speak and invite us into the challenge of letting you be Lord, letting you, the gracious forgiver, take us perhaps where we don't want to go. We are more broken than we care to admit and we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever imagined. And I pray that that grace, that combination would come alive for each of us in a new way today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to picture this, a very old man, maybe 85, 90 years old. Um, and as that sign-up is going around, I'll just say, it's fine if it kind of stalls here and there um, and you need to listen. Um, don't let that stress you out and miss some of this message. Um, so you picture this 85 or 90-year-old man. The year is around 90 AD. And this man has seen it all. Um, he re- can reflect back and remember the early days when he, s- he was with Jesus. Um, he was actually a friend of Jesus. He saw the, the shocking and exciting and unbelievable things that Jesus did that you can read about in the New Testament. Miracles, even. And he, can, he remembers those days, and then he remembers the days when Jesus' death turned from being a, a, a grief-stricken kind of moment for the Jesus fans of the day, and turned into actually something totally different, this explosive joy and celebration as Jesus, um, the tomb was empty, and they learned Jesus had risen from the dead, and they saw him, and then when Jesus ascended, another chapter of joy and exuberance came when it just seemed like the switch was flipping on, and people left and right were catching wind of this new life, and this gracious forgiveness that comes out of the combination of the death on the cross and the empty tomb and that message was spoken to new people and it seemed like more people were being added to their number every day. This old man remembers that chapter. And then years went on and um, some of the others who were there with this old man began to pass away. Many of them, there was persecution. You know, there there was people out to get the Christians. And decade upon decade, 
piled on top of each other till we find this old man. It's one of the only ones left who was there. And he finds himself in this interesting situation where there is what he probably would have expected, where young people, you know, young people like, like all of you young people, would, would come to him and say, I'm a Christian, I believe this, and tell me again, what, what was that like? What, what was Jesus? Tell me the stories, tell all of it. I want to sit down for a week with you and just, I'll come to your place every day, just tell me the whole thing. What did you see? What did you hear? I, I want to be encouraged. I want to know. I want to learn. I want to be a disciple. And he experienced that, but he also experienced the dramatic opposite. At the same time, he was experiencing just a growing skepticism and kind of scoffing at this faith. And he was being viewed, I want you to picture, as a demented old man with 50-year-old stories that were certainly added on to with the legends and the myths all about somebody who was maybe a good teacher, But all of that other stuff, Messiah, son of God, raising from the dead, silly old man. So he would experience that from friends and family and neighbors, but he would also, starting to experience probably what he didn't imagine, is that within these little house groups of churches where he was very involved and often viewed as that, that elder, that leader who was there, he was also experiencing some of these young, cantankerous, power aggressive leaders who wanted to do things their way and didn't want to follow the advice of the old man. And he was beginning to experience betrayal and ridicule and malicious slandering around his back and people not wanting to give him respect as being someone who had been there in the beginning. And so this old man, I want you to picture, is writing still in this role as a leader in the church, writing to Christians and Christian churches. And, and you just, just get a sense of the kind of the turmoil in the Christian community here in the letter of 1 John, where he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. That was scary kind of language, but, but listen to what he says. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is a liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah. You get a sense that he's experiencing a lot of that in his old age. A lot of people denying that Jesus is the Messiah. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing you these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. You get the sense of the turmoil. Then he says in the letter that we call 3 John, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, 
<laughs> I love that part. Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. You get this, I mean, we don't know all the details of these things, but I'm just, you do get a sense of, of the turmoil, of the cantankerous division that this old man is writing about and struggling with. So who is this old man? Now let me just kind of take us through some steps. This is more classroom style, but it won't take long, and I think we'll all benefit from it. Well, most people would say, well, I mean, look at the heading. It says John. Isn't it John who, somebody named John wrote these letters and wrote the Gospel of John? Well, the first thing to, to point out about this is that book titles were added later to the New Testament. So when it says John over the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you know, those letters didn't originally come with a big stamp on top to this church that said to John, you know, 2nd John. Didn't have that. They were added later as a way of dividing and, and helping us know where we were in the New Testament and also a way of saying this is the tradition that these writings came from John. So they're not original to the documents. Another thing to notice is that actually... Nowhere in the epistles, we call them, the letters of John, 1, 2, and 3, nowhere in there does he identify himself as John. And nowhere in the Gospel of John does he say, my name is John, and I'm writing as John. It was a tradition that developed later on. But let's assume it is a John, because that was the tradition even in the first few centuries of the church. So which John wrote John? Well, okay, we've got... John, the son of Zebedee, who is one of the 12 apostles. We have John of Patmos, who identifies himself in the book of Revelation as the author of that book. We have John the Baptist, and we have John Mark. These seems to, seem to be the only Johns we know about in that time period. So let's eliminate some of these. First of all, John Mark we can eliminate because he's never been associated with the book of John. He's always been associated with the book of Mark. We can eliminate John the Baptist because John the Baptist died um, just at the start of Jesus' ministry and wasn't around to be able to write about it later on. So he's never been um, mistaken as the author of the Gospel of John. How about John of Patmos? Well, that would be a decent candidate. We don't really know who that is. We don't know if it's the same as the John Ze Zebedee, number, letter A. But the problem with John of Patmos is he... It, identifies himself as the writer of Revelation. And the book of Revelation has a totally different literary and grammatical style than the letters of John and the Gospel of John. So we sort of, just by style, we cross him out. So who's left? Well, the, this is the traditional opinion that the Apostle John, whose brother was James, and they're described as the sons of Zebedee that Jesus calls along from their fishing boats and says, come and follow me, and they leave their boats behind. And so that's who we have said all along is the John who wrote John. An interesting thing about that, though, that plants a little seed of doubt is that those sons of Zebedee were located and grew up around in Galilee, um, by the Sea of Galilee, and they were fishermen. You can't see very well on this map, but you see in this map Judea at the bottom and, and this body of water down there, but then you also see the Sea of Galilee up top in the area of, that you can probably read a little bit there, Galilee. Um, 
they're from up there in Galilee, but the, the, or, or John and his brother James are from Galilee, growing up around where Jesus grew up. The Gospel of John doesn't tell any of the Galilee stories, or maybe just one or two of them. So why would these people who hung out with Jesus in his home area of Galilee, not, why would this John not tell any of the Galilee stories? And why would his stories instead focus, as they do in the Gospel of John, more on the things that happen in Jerusalem? You can't see it again in this map, but right where it says Judea, a little bit above that is Jerusalem. So we have a little, you know, planting a seed of doubt there with the traditional John of Zebedee, the apostle who people have thought wrote the gospel. So what do we know? Let's just review a few things here. It's always good to review, right? And also there is a handout that I didn't mention, but there's a handout you can grab on the way out that just has a lot of the content of these slides on it. So what we know, it's possible that it wasn't a John at all. This is merely a later tradition. Whoever wrote it talked about himself as the disciple Jesus loved and not John. Also, whoever wrote the Gospel of John is a stylistic dead ringer for the author of the three epistles of John. The writing style's the same. And in the three epistles, he refers to himself as the elder, or you could say the old one. And so, um, and then also that last point, none of the usual John suspects seem like a perfect lock for the identity of this beloved of Jesus. And so we enter into this case that even the readings I, we laid out and we heard originally are supposed to invite you to consider the case for Lazarus as the author of John. A lot of this, this isn't coming out of my own head. This is recent research and tied together in this book that I've been using for a lot of this sermon series, What Have They Done With Jesus? Beyond Strange Theories and Bad History, Why We Can Trust the Bible. So he has a couple chapters on this Lazarus character and on the beloved. So let's just follow what's going on in the book of John. Because this person, Lazarus, right from the beginning, is talked about as the one Jesus loves. So it's sort of staring us right in the face. John 11, verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And then, of course, the miracle story, rising him from the dead. And then we get to chapter 12. And just another little tidbit about Lazarus. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at table with Jesus. And then we hear in the next chapter, it's not mentioned that it's Lazarus, but... We know Lazarus is this one whom Jesus loved. And so we read in chapter 13, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And that's that story. And if we continue to go on, then we get more references to the disciple Jesus loved, a whole bunch of them that I'm skipping. And then we get towards the very end of the gospel of, uh, that we call the gospel of John. And it says, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Then if we skip a couple verses, we get to verse 23, where we, you know, and we read more of this in the reading just a minute ago. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? And then this last line that maybe is being covered for some of you and you can't see it, the next verse, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. 
there's sort of a logic here to follow that, that this one who is risen from the dead, who is talked about as both the one Jesus loved and as Lazarus, it would make sense in writing out a gospel, a long story of Jesus, that then you would be consistent. And if you've talked about someone as being the one Jesus loved, that later on when you talked about the disciple Jesus loved, you're talking about the same person. So there's that. There's also the sense that if that's true and Lazarus is the one Jesus loved, then it makes a whole lot more sense about this rumor that he wouldn't die. That we get to the end and there's this rumor that maybe this Lazarus guy, because he was raised from the dead a first time, maybe he was never going to die. Makes a little bit of sense out of all that. And um, so we have the case for Lazarus. We also have the geographical case for Lazarus, is that Lazarus, we know, with, along with his sisters Mary and Martha, is from the town of Bethany, which if you can see on this map, you see Judea and then above that Bethlehem and then Jerusalem. Bethany is right next to Jerusalem, about a, a mile and a half outside. So we have this gospel filled with all these stories about when Jesus was in the Bethany and Jerusalem area. Well, we also have Lazarus as potentially the disciple whom Jesus loved and who maybe wrote this book. So we have the case for Lazarus. Okay, school's out. <laughs> we got through it. We got through it. What are the implications of all this? A couple things I'd like to mention. Um, no slides, really, for the first thing I'd like to say. And that is that we live in a time where you come into here and either you come in with great skepticism and perhaps scoffing about the Christian beliefs or you for sure, if that's not true about you, it's true of, of a whole bunch of people in your family, in your work, in your neighborhood. We have someone before us who, if this is all true and it's Lazarus who's writing all of these things, the book of John and the letters of John, we have this person who, this old man who, to the end of his days, he was one who could literally say, I was there. I saw him. I was at the empty tomb. I saw him alive again. I was there for the exciting chapters after he left. I was even there before all of that happened when he raised me from the dead. He could say all of that. And yet still he was met with and surrounded by, it seems, scoffing, slandering people too smart for what he believed, too smart to follow those conclusions of Jesus being the Son of God or the Messiah or someone that eventually you might call in your life Lord. So you got this old man who could look back on all that and could tell you everything about Jesus and yet picture him just surrounded by the same skepticism, by people who could believe just about anything other than what he thought the conclusions about Jesus led to. Surprisingly, you might think, Mark, that's an awfully negative spin on this person. No, no, I, I find great hope and comfort in that. I find great hope and comfort in someone living that kind of long life. You might like to picture, if you're a Christian, you might like to think back and picture these early days as being kind of pristine and cleaned up and really easy and things working really well because they had Jesus right there. That's not the picture we get from this old man. 
I find comfort in that. I find hope in that. We're not alone. It's not so strange that you might feel like you're the only one kind of floating on a melting chunk of ice in the cold, deadly, frigid waters below you if you're a Christian. So that's one implication. I think it's hugely encouraging to think of this man writing the Gospel of John and, and saying all of these things. He's, he is God. He is one with the Father. He is the life of the world. I'm saying them to an incredibly skeptical and unbelieving context. But I also think we can look at our last implication is to consider what if the person who wrote these lines was someone who had been given his life back from the dead? How do you think about some of these things that John, whoever John is, we're saying maybe he was Lazarus, what do, you, what do you say about these phrases where he says, in him was life and that life was the light of all people? He says in John 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's talking a lot about life. He says later, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It goes on, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He goes on, he says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's interesting. Life, eternal life, living forever. And he says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What does this old man think about what's important in life. He's seen it all. He's seen people chase after things. You and I are met with challenges and opportunities where we're, in a sense, drawn into the siren's call of the world to chase after things. You know, that last slide, the world and its desires. We come to forks in the road and we want to grab hold of something bigger, something we believe in, something that should direct us through the challenges and opportunities that we face. And we say, how do I make this decision? Or how do I go about this struggle? What is life? What is life all about? And this old man says, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting about what they have and what they do comes from the world. It's not life. It's not life. 
So I got word this week that someone I didn't even know, her name's Emily, she passed away this week at the age of 27. She's a friend of people at City Life. She's a friend of a bunch of people who I know and I'm friends with, but I didn't know her. She died at the age of 27, and I think the old man John would use her if he had her life to point to, and he would say, you want to know what's life? You want to know there's the world, and then there's life? Here's life. And he might read, like I'm about to, from the GoFundMe page where they're trying to afford her, um, her funeral and celebration of life. This is writing about Emily. She died on Wednesday. Emily was a complex, tenacious, deeply loving woman of action, courageous to defy cultural norms, to stand in the gap for those in need of community and a friend. In essence, Emily found beauty in the process and had the tenacity to challenge the comfort she saw around her in the effort of catapulting us into the freedom of life found in a relationship with Christ. In her early adulthood, she pursued her passion for writing and then veered her attention particularly to cultures outside of the U.S. During college, she studied abroad in Uganda to where she met her later-to-be companion and husband, Jehoshaphat Muzungu. Soon after graduation, her focus went particularly to the refugee community. It started with her work with World Relief, and then intentionally moving to, she intentionally moved to Arden Arcade to live in the midst of the Afghan population she was working with. To where she then launched Raft Ahmad to build a bridge between the community that was already living there and the community that was entering. She, be, she became the neighborhood sister to the children and families running around at all hours of the day. She opened her home to anyone who would enter and made her home their home. Emily was a continuous advocate and friend. What is life? It goes on. As she stated, God didn't create a culture to divide people, but to build strong and lasting relationships that embrace diversity and depend on love, surpassing any weak cultural links by doing so. The friendships that were formed, the communion that was shared, were a marvelous reflection of the home of belonging that may be found in Jesus. These were her words. And that is why I pray all of us may find in the presence of God our true home. So the family writes, Emily's passing came abruptly and tragically. She had been fighting her chronic health issues for most of her life that no physician could solve. Emily did not allow the limitations of her health issues to dictate how she enjoyed her life. However, at the end of the day, she lost the fight and is now in true communion with Jesus. What is life? And what kind of life are you stepping into as you take a little extra time, perhaps on this holiday weekend, to consider stepping back into things on Tuesday? What is life? Let's pray. Our God of grace, we might think of Lazarus as someone who got the lucky ticket, the lucky lottery ticket, raised from the dead, a second chance to enjoy the world, to 
build a life for himself, to craft the perfect retirement, and to check off his bucket list. And instead, what we see is someone who eschews all those worldly definitions of life and preaches a different kind of life and tells us today about what life is really all about once you've met the gracious forgiver, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. May we have the chance to know that Son of God and that Messiah. May you break down our walls. May you help us let go. Maybe we have to let go of some parts of the American dream that have particularly tantalized us. And would you help us to know real, full, eternal life right now. In Jesus' name, amen.